Well, I want to invite you to please open up your Bibles to Mark chapter 6. And we're going to continue a series that we started early last month called Battling Unbelief. We took a little break from the Gospel of Mark. We had a couple other brothers who, who blessed us and taught during the month of March. And then we also had a special, special message for Resurrection Sunday. But we're going to resume our study today. Those who are with us will recall that we said that if there's one unifying theme within this chapter of, of Mark and Mark 6, it was the theme of unbelief. And it started with Jesus being rejected in his hometown. They, they didn't even want to come out and interact with him. They didn't want to hear the message that he was preaching. Few people even came out to have miracles and we hear Jesus even respond in Mark 6, 6, that he was astonished by their unbelief. Next, the 12 apostles were sent out on their pre-commission, and the Lord allowed them to also endure the realities of unbelief, the same realities that he faced preaching to the unbelieving crowds. Next, Mark provides the account of John the Baptist as he encountered the unbelief of Herod Antipas and his wife. And we know where that led. It foreshadowed the persecution of the apostles and what they would ultimately face in, in persecution and death in the future. Then we studied the account of Jesus feeding the 5,000, which also focused on unbelief. But this time, rather than it focusing on the unbelief of the, the massive crowds, it actually starts this notable trend that we see it, the unbelief within the disciples themselves. And it carries all the way through the remaining passages of this chapter. The unbelief of the 12 disciples was best exemplified when they doubted Jesus and his ability to provide for them as well as the massive crowd. And they looked at everything to find answers to their problem except to the Lord. They looked at the size of the crowd they looked at their own resources and considered their own finances. They considered the inadequate resources that they had at their disposal. Very inadequate. And all the time the Lord was waiting for them to look to him. And that alone is a good synopsis of the lesson we learned and one that we should keep in mind. How often we can be tempted to trust in our own resources, in our own provisions. That we look to self instead of looking to the Lord to provide. Rather than looking to the one who can do exceedingly and abundantly beyond all that we can ask or think. We somehow think that we got to come up with the solution to our problems. Even though the disciples had Christ at their disposal, the same residue of unbelief and hard-heartedness continues and was something the Lord wanted to cleanse them of in preparation for their future ministry. He wanted them to, to believe. He wanted them to have a strong, robust faith. They were going to be the foundation for the church. They needed to be strong. They needed to be built up. And it's something that he desires to do for you and I as well. As we study these passages the Lord should be encouraging us in a similar vein to trust him more deeply, to cultivate a greater dependency upon him in every area of life and ministry. 
Let's tackle the text to see how God's word can bless us. Mark 6, starting in verse 45 through 52, shares this. Immediately, Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go ahead of him to the other side to Bethsaida. And while he himself was sending the crowd away, after bidding them farewell, he left for the mountain to pray. When it was evening, the boat was in the middle of the sea, and he was alone on the land. Seeing them straining at the oars, for the wind was against them, at about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them, walking on the sea, and he intended to pass by them. But when they saw him walking on the sea, they supposed that it was a ghost and cried out, for they all saw him and were terrified. But immediately he spoke with them. He said to them, Take courage, it is I. Do not be afraid. Then he got in the boat with them, and the wind stopped, and they were utterly astonished. For they had not gained any insight from the incident of the loaves, but their heart was hardened. You may have noticed the title of the message that's already in your bulletin, I am in the middle of the storm, and the I am is in quotes. And that's intentional because it's to, to, to capture and help us focus on the deity of Christ, which is the primary purpose of this passage. Our passage features five encouraging realities so that you and I see Jesus for who he is and trust him completely through all the circumstances of our lives. What encouraged me the most about studying this passage was seeing how the Lord's ministry to, to believers goes beyond our salvation, right? And we celebrate that. We're saved, but what, was, what encouraged me so much, as if that weren't enough, that we get a chance and, and we're going to see it together as, the, as Jesus shepherds them, as he prays for them, as he watches over them, as he challenges them and comforts his disciples. And as I was reflecting on this passage, it was just encouraging to me. He does the same for you and I and every single person that trusts in him. That we're new creations and it's his ongoing ministry to us in our sanctification that enables us and helps the redeemed live lives for his glory. And we have a lot of truth to uncover, so let's dig it out together. The first encouraging reality that we see is in the opening verse. And if Jesus were to express it in his own words, he would let his disciples know, I am shepherding you. Look at verse 45. It says, Immediately, Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go ahead of him to the other side, to Bethsaida, while he himself was sending the crowd away. Our verse begins with Mark using one of his favorite words that we've gained a sense of, immediately. And there's a sense of urgency with this passage that's connected to the previous one. And he's, there's actually a storm that's brewing, but it has nothing to do with the climate has nothing to do with the weather system. It involves a social and political storm brewing among the people. Jesus has just finished feeding 20 to 25,000 people. And not only has he healed all those who were sick, 
Not only has he been teaching them with profound spiritual wisdom, unlike anything they've ever heard, but he's also just finished giving them the most amazing meal. All the bread and all the fish they could possibly eat. And not just any bread or fish, but the best they had ever eaten. How good was it? The parallel account in John 6 and verse 15 says that they were intending to come and take him by force to make him king. You can imagine being a part of the crowd, can't you? You know, just the conversations that were taking place. Jesus is a pretty smart guy, don't you think? Yeah, he's godly too. Wow. And how about his ability? He, can, he heals everyone. He can heal everyone. Yeah, he's not a bad cook either. You know, wink. They just had this amazing, right? I have an idea. Jesus is president. Yeah. Well, you know, let's make him our king. You know, and this is exactly what was taking place. And Jesus is perceiving this going on. And it's a brewing storm and a growing idea among the people. And as you know, our Lord has had to shepherd his disciples on a regular basis to let them know that his kingdom is not of this world, right? That was their anticipation that it would be an earthly kingdom, that it would be set up. Our Lord knew how vulnerable his disciples would be if this massive crowd started demanding that he be king in their presence. The disciples would only be inclined to agree. And they would also be thinking, well, we're his closest associates. It would make sense that we would, you know, be, uh, uh, serve with him as his, his executives in the kingdom. So what does Jesus do? He shepherds them to the boat right away. And here we see the Lord's protection and love on display for his disciples. It is the very heartbeat of our sympathetic great high priest who understands where we are vulnerable. And he understood the disciples' weaknesses. He knew just how vulnerable they were. He knows where we are vulnerable. He also knows the importance of the Father's will being fulfilled according to God's uh, sovereign plan. Jesus shepherds you and I in a similar fashion today. Sometimes there are situations that seem, at least from our perspective, that everything's lined up, right? Wow, this is going to be perfect. Everything seems to be lining up. And then God shepherds our hearts away from it by not allowing it to happen. Maybe it's a job promotion that never takes place. Maybe it's a dating relationship that never materializes. Maybe it's a home that you were going to purchase. It has the perfect backyard for the kids. It's going to be great. Oh, we're going to rent it. And then it doesn't work out. Maybe it's pregnancy or desire to, to be parents. And the pregnancy hasn't happened yet. And everything may seem so right in our eyes, yet the Lord has to shepherd us to a boat in a spiritual sense. 
He has to guide us and point us in a different direction. Or he has to let us know that, hey, it's not my timing. And by the way, will there be an earthly kingdom? Will there be an earthly kingdom set up where Jesus will be king and the apostles will rule and reign with him? Of course there's going to be. The millennial kingdom. And Israel will be restored from all her oppressors and the people will rejoice because Jesus is going to be their king. But the disciples in the crowd would have to wait. The first verse gives us our first encouraging reality as Jesus lets us know, I am shepherding you. The second encouraging reality comes in our second verse. If Jesus were to say it directly to his disciples, he would say, I am praying for you. Look at verse 46. After bidding them farewell, he left for the mountain to pray. Having dismissed the disciples and the crowd, Jesus heads to the mountain. In the New American Standard, it says mountain, but it could actually be translated hills or hillside. And the location isn't significant. It's what Jesus is doing there that is important. James Edwards shares the mention of prayer in this context is a further clue of a messianic groundswell for Mark notes Jesus praying at only three points in his ministry. Mark 1.35, here in Mark 6.45, and later in Mark 14.35. Each prayer is at night and in a lonely place, Each finds the disciples removed from him and failing to understand his mission. And in each, Jesus faces a formative decision or crisis. Following the feeding of the 5,000, Jesus affirms by prayer his calling to express his divine sonship as a servant rather than as a freedom fighter against Rome. End quote. Jesus knows the purpose for which he came. He knows where he is headed. He doesn't need to pray for himself. He doesn't. And rest assured, when when you see Jesus praying in the gospel accounts, there's one of two things that's happening there. Jesus is either communing and having fellowship with God the Father and God the Holy Spirit, or he is praying for his disciples. He is praying for them. And we see strong evidence of this. Like in Luke twenty-two thirty-one, Jesus says, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. The most notable and powerful example comes in John chapter 17. And I want to invite you to turn there, please. John 17. The entire chapter involves Jesus praying for his disciples. In the context, this is Jesus praying literally right before he goes to the cross. And the very next thing that you're going to see at the beginning of John chapter 18 is Judas betraying him. John MacArthur preached this entire chapter at the opening session of the Shepherds Conference this year. And if you really want to be blessed this week, go to shepherdsconference.org and listen to that opening session. It is, it is powerful. Time won't permit us to stay here long, but I want to draw your attention to what Jesus prays for his disciples, and we will see how it will shed some light on our passage in Mark 6. 
Let's start in verse 9. Jesus praying to the Father says, I ask on their behalf. I do not ask on behalf of the world, but of those whom you have given me, for they are yours. And all things that are mine are yours, and yours are mine. I have been glorified in them. I am no longer in the world. What he means by that is the reality of his death is so imminent, right? This is right before the cross that he no longer even considers himself in the world. And yet they themselves are in the world. I come to you, Holy Father, keep them in your name. What is Jesus praying? Father, help them to persevere in faith. Protect them. Help them to understand your will. Help them to see me for who I am. I am your son. Look at verse 12. While I was with them, I was keeping them in your name, which you have given me. And I guarded them. And not one of them perished, but Judas Iscariot, the son of perdition, so that the scripture would be fulfilled. Not only did Jesus guard his disciples, but he prayed for their protection. And this prayer extends to you and I, even to this moment. How can we know this? Look down at verse 20. Jesus prays, I do not ask on behalf of these alone, but for those also who believe in me through their word through the apostolic word, through the ministry. That is an extension to us to this very day. And he was praying for us. And if you really want to have your minds blown, look at what he prays in verse 24. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, be with me where I am. How encouraging is that? Think about this, believer. That the Lord Jesus Christ, even in this moment, longs for you to be with him. Did you know that? He longs for the church to be in his presence. Why? Look at the end of verse 24. So that they may see my glory, which you have given me. For you loved me before the foundation of the world. Pastor MacArthur cross-references Romans 5, and he links the ministry of our justification to the even greater ministry of Christ making ongoing intercession for believers that literally involves him praying us into his presence, praying us into glory. You, you have to go hear that message. It, it is that radically powerful. Our elder team was so encouraged by it. It was one of the highlights of our elder retreat. How encouraging is it for us to see this ongoing reality, this intercession that's taking place as our Lord prays us through our trials, that he's praying that we persevere in our faith. And if that isn't enough encouragement already, we're just getting started in Mark 6. Turn, turn back there with me. Mark 6. Not only is Jesus always shepherding his disciples and praying for them, he is also faithful to help his disciples, which takes us to the third encouraging reality in your outline. 
Look at verses 47 and 48. When it was evening, the boat was in the middle of the sea, and he was alone on the land, seeing them straining at the oars, for the wind was against them. At about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea, and he intended to pass by them. Now, I know what you might be thinking at this moment. Didn't you just say he's going to help them? Uh, Passing them by doesn't seem like the most helpful thing from my perspective. Well, allow me to set the stage so that you can see the bigger picture here. The Lord continued to watch over and pray for them. And the scriptures don't tell us, but there's a good chance that Jesus could, could see them from where he was praying. Right? This isn't, there's, there's multiple miracles in this account. And we get so conditioned sometimes there's things that are taking place that there's miracles that can even pass us by. The Lord could, in his, in his deity, could certainly see the, the disciples. How far out were they on the lake? John 6.19 lets us know that they're about three to four miles out from the shoreline. It was nighttime. And this context seems so far away because the last message we heard was so long ago. But after the, the, the miracles of the loaves, right? How many baskets did they gather up? Right? Twelve. Each had their own basket of fish and bread. And remember what I said. I searched the scriptures and they hadn't eaten at that point. So when the Lord Jesus Christ sends them away, they got their baskets with them. And you can just imagine that they're finally getting a break from the massive crowd. They finally have this full basket of food. And so they're probably relaxing, resting a little bit, getting some food. Well, things escalate during the later portion of the evening when a storm with a strong headwind not only prevents them from making any progress, But the the storm sounds eerily similar to the one at the end of Mark chapter 4. Verse 48 says that they were straining at the oars. And this is really a soft translation of the Greek. It's the word basanizo. And it means to be tortured or to be tormented. They were literally being tortured, trying to get through the storm in their own strength. Now those with a little spiritual aptitude can see the the direction of where this is heading. You have to have this contrast in your mind. Imagine the straining at the oars, literally being tormented against the storm, doing everything that they could within their strength. Then all of a sudden they see someone walking effortlessly on right by them. Add to the fact that it's on top of the water. And that would explain their reaction. Now, I was trying to come up with an illustration of what what this would look like. Imagine climbing the stairs of of, of an extremely high skyscraper, the Sears Tower in Chicago, 108 stories. Okay? And you're taking the stairs up And by the time you get to the 20th story, your legs are on fire. You're burning, excruciating pain. And be encouraged, only 88 more to go. (laughs) Right? And then in the stairwell, you look through the glass wall, and then all of a sudden you see someone pass by in an elevator going up. 
effortlessly. And you would be like, there's an elevator, <laughs> right? Wouldn't we? There's, there's, there's an elevator. Are you kidding? And this is illustrating what's happening here. Jesus Christ is the elevator that awaits to carry the load. He wants them to see that he's ready and willing to help if they'll just call on him. But there's a reason that they don't. And it's featured for us down at the end in verse 52. It says, because their heart was hardened. And this is an interesting grammatical phrase. The word translated heart is singular. The verb is also singular, intense. But, intense. but then, then we see this plural possessive pronoun, there. Getting a little grammar lesson for our high school students. Plural possessive pronoun. There, plural, heart, Singular, verb singular, was hardened. Why? It's reflecting that it's unified. That all of their hearts were, were the same. They were hardened. And in the Greek, it's a word that can mean dull or to have a closed mind. And though the twelve with the exception of Judas Iscariot, believed and trusted Christ, there were still aspects of their thinking that were closed to the fullness of his deity. And you know what? The same is true for you to this day. There are still aspects and still studying of the scriptures and spiritual enlightenment. There's still things, right, that we just don't know yet, that we don't see. Our Lord would again use this exact same word to describe them in Mark 8, 17, after he performs an identical miracle of feeding uh, another miraculous, massive crowd. So the disciples believe, but in many ways, their hearts reflect the same expression of the Father. And those familiar, Marcus Denny preached this on it when we were at retreat. It was the, boy, the father of the demonized boy. And what does he say? He says, Lord, I do believe. Help my unbelief. And so what does Jesus do to help their unbelief and get the disciples to see their need for his help? And this brings us to the fourth encouraging reality in your outline, in the heart of this passage. He challenges their faith. Look at verse 49 in the beginning of verse 50. But when they saw him walking on the sea, they supposed that it was a ghost and cried out, for they all saw him and were terrified. The fear, ironically, that gripped their hearts is very similar to what took place in the last storm in Mark 4.41, where it records, they became very much afraid and said to one another, who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? Now, the second storm is also taking place at night during the fourth watch. And the watches were broken up, and at least according to Roman tradition that Jews eventually adopted. 6 to 9 p.m. was first watch, 9 to midnight, second watch, midnight to 3 a.m., right? And so this fourth watch is 3 to 6 a.m. And so those who are ever up at that hour 
and there are some people who work shifts like that, you know that depending on how late it was into the fourth watch, that there could even be this dusk-like illumination that was starting to take place, right? And all we know is that the disciples think that they're seeing a ghost. Phantasma in the Greek, from where we get our English word phantom. In classical Greek, it means the appearance of a spirit or apparition. And thus it gets translated ghost, or in some translations, spirit. And Jesus addresses their fears right away so they know who it is, as verse 50 continues. But immediately he spoke with them and said to them, Take courage, it is I. Do not be afraid. How does he challenge their faith? How does he challenge our faith? The Lord has a remarkable ability of putting us in these real life situations where these occurrences that, that demand that we reach out for his help as is taking place right here in this account. And he also continues to orchestrate things so that we trust him more and more deeply than we did before. Did you know that? It's a growing faith. We are growing forward in discipleship. God wants you to trust him today more than you did yesterday. And you want to know what? He's going to want you to trust him tomorrow more than you did today. It is the never-ending lesson of his discipleship. Turn with me to Matthew. Because you got to see this. There's, there's an aspect of this account that Mark isn't led by the Holy Spirit to record, but Matthew includes it. And, it. and it really helps us to see that he's challenging their faith. This is the identical account in Mark, Matthew 14. And we'll start in verse 28. The context, everything is identical. You don't need to read before. It's... it's it, we're, we're all set up. Starting in verse 28, this is going to be an encounter with the apostle Peter. Peter said to him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. And he said, come. And Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came toward Jesus. But seeing the wind, he became frightened. And beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Immediately, Jesus stretched out his hand and took hold of him. And he said to him, You of little faith, why did you doubt? Let's start by looking at two lessons, okay? We'll start with a positive lesson that we can look at. And then there's one that's not so positive. I want you to notice Peter's obedience, the Lord just commanded all the disciples in the boat, in both accounts that we've covered so far, take courage. Command number one, it is I. Do not be afraid. Command number two. And, and what, what, what do we see? Simon Peter jumps up. He literally jumps up and he says, Lord, if it is you, I'm going to walk to you. If it is really you, I'm going to walk to you. Question. If you were in the boat, what would you have done? I think it's easy. We, we know how the story ends, right? It's easy for us to speculate. But imagine just that scenario of what's taking place there. 
And Peter is the only one of the 12. And he gets up and initially it serves as a great testimony for us. Why? Because he trusted the Lord with all of his heart. He didn't lean on his own understanding. He's a fisherman. He knows what happens when you go into water. Right? He knows. Ten out of ten times you sink. Right? It's, that's that's the, the, the rate. But he was so focused and fixed on the Lord. And he was not leaning on his own understanding. He looked beyond that. And he, he focused on Christ. And he started to walk. And I am absolutely certain, with the fullest conviction... That the reason why he was able to walk on the water is because his heart was focused on Christ. And Christ enabled that miracle to take place because his heartbeat was working in conjunction with the Lord's power and the Lord's will. But then notice what happens in verse 30. And this is where Peter gets in trouble. And this is the not-so-positive lesson. And notice where his eyes go. It's like riding a bike. You, you, you know, if, if you're riding a bike and you don't want your kids to fall, teach them to keep their eyes up. I rode a motorcycle. You know a lot of people dip on the motorcycle. You want to know why? Because when they look down, guess what happens? They go down. Look, look at Peter's eyes. But seeing the wind, he became frightened and began to sink. Peter took his eyes off Christ and he started to focus on the surrounding circumstances and he began to sink. And man, I am so glad that you and I never do that, okay? Right? It can happen regularly if we don't have our eyes fixed on him, right? And before we know it, we're crying out just like Peter, desperate in our circumstances, saying, Lord, save me. I need you, save me. And what does the Lord do? Verse 31, immediately Jesus stretched out his hand and took hold of him. And so often, he does the same for us as he graciously and lovingly rescues us from our desperate circumstances that could have been avoided. Wait a minute. Pastor John, did you just say that that could have been avoided? Yes. Yes. And this is where we must receive the challenge to our faith. The Lord presents it in question form to Peter. You of little faith, why did you doubt? Sometimes when we're drowning in our circumstances, the Lord is asking us the very same question. And it's much easier to get overtaken by little faith than you realize. All of a sudden, it starts with a day where you don't acknowledge the Lord. Not, only, not just at the beginning of the day, but then guess what? It can fester and grow, and then you don't acknowledge him at any point through the day. Before you know it, you're operating in your own strength, your own independence, and you haven't given the Lord one thought. And I'm speaking for myself. I want you guys to know this. There have been days where I've driven home from this office, from the church, working in ministry, where I have had to repent and say, 
Father, I have not even recognized you today. Please forgive me because I have all this stuff going on that I'm trying to do in my own strength. You know what I call those? Christless days. You ever had a Christless day, right? And you know what happens? And it it, it never fails. Christless days turn into crisis days. And then before you know it, there's everything that you're trying to do. You're running into headache. You're running into problems. You're running into trial after trial. And it's the Lord's way of helping us see that we're not to function in independence. It's the Lord's way of challenging our faith. How do I prevent this from happening? Is there anything that we can do so that we don't find ourselves drowning in desperate circumstances? Yes. Yes, and the fifth and final encouraging reality will help us to see it. Our passage has featured five encouraging realities so that you see Jesus for who he is and trust completely in him in all the circumstances of life. And here's what the Lord has helped us to see so far. I am shepherding you. I am praying for you. I am helping you. I am challenging your faith. And finally, I am present in your circumstances. Turn back to Mark 6 and notice what happens in verse 51. 51 and 52. Then he got into the boat with them. And the wind stopped. Then he got into the boat with them, and the wind stopped. And they were utterly astonished, for they had not gained any insight from the incident of the loaves, but their heart was hardened. You may recall from our first study in the first storm back at the end of Mark 4 that Jesus was in the boat with them. You remember that? And to calm the storm, he simply said, hush. Be still. Right? They were amazed, terrified, actually. Now, in this account, Jesus is not with the disciples physically, and he's doing something. He's preparing them for their future ministry. Why? Is he going to be with them? He's going to the cross. He's going to the cross, and physically, he is not going to be there with them. So he's preparing them. In this account, the Lord doesn't say a word. He simply gets into the boat with them, and immediately it calms all the turbulence. Right? It just, it just, it just stops. Everything's calm. And what a powerful and lasting impression this would have on them and their hearts, according to verse 52 because they had not gained any insight from the incident of the Lord of the loaves so the Lord faithfully and miraculously reminds them here that they need not fear so long as they're aware that he is present in their circumstances and I didn't share this before but I want to share it now because it, it, 
I, I think if, if it's, there's like takeaway and all sermons have takeaways, right? But if there's one that I just want to have a lasting impression on your soul for the remaining of your days, on your heart, that you would take away, it is this one. In verse 50, Jesus says something that should forever be branded in our thinking. He says, take courage. It is I. Do not be afraid. That little expression, it is I, sandwiched right there in the middle. Ego eimi in the Greek. Literally translated, I am. I am. You want to know why I used that throughout the entire outline? It was to, to, to reflect that reality. It is identical to God's self-disclosure to Moses back in Exodus 3.14. And we see it throughout the Old Testament. It is Yahweh in the Old Testament delivering God's people time and time again, shepherding them, guiding them, helping them, present with them. Whether in a, uh, a temple or a tabernacle, there was a presence, right? He was there in the midst of his people. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, Joshua, David, present with them. We read it in the psalm that started the, ser the sermon. He's a very present help in our time of trouble. In church, we need to see it. Take courage. The New King James says, be of good cheer. Right? I am. Do not be afraid. Consider it all joy when you encounter trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance, right? We see it reflected right there. This expression is strategically placed in the middle of those two other commands. He's, he's right there in the middle to, to take courage. He's right there. Do not be afraid. And we can't miss it. All of life on this side of the cross needs to hang on the reality of this truth, does it not, right? What, what we're going to face, death of loved ones, sudden death, Trump is president, whatever. I'm, I'm just saying, like, like, there's so many, I see so many Christians just honestly being caught up in the reality. You know what? We deserve the worst combination of Hillary, Bernie, and Trump. We, we do, I, I'm just sharing with you. I'm not a, this isn't a political. I'm just helping you have a perspective that, that, that God is the one that we need to center all of our attention on. And he is going to do what he's going to do, right? He's going to do. Yeah, and can we, as Christians, use our testimony and our witness to try to influence our culture? Yes, we can. But God's got a plan and nothing's going to hinder it. No matter what fears we have faced in the past, no matter what fears that we may face in the future, Jesus Christ, I am, will always be there. Shepherding you. Praying for you. Helping you faithfully growing you in the middle of it all. J.C. Ryle closes this passage with this quote. 
The plain duty of the Christian is to live provided with an antidote against all fears of the great unseen world. That antidote is faith in an unseen Savior and constant communion with Him. Armed with that antidote and seeing Him who is invisible, nothing need make us afraid. We travel on towards a world of spirits. We are surrounded even now by many dangers. But with Jesus for our shepherd, we have no cause for alarm. With him for our shield, we are safe. And all God's people said, amen, amen. Let's pray together.